0: as alaikum alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh brothers and sisters and welcome to the final episode for 2021 of the Convo podcast. We are delighted to have with us a very special guest who we will introduce very shortly Uh, but first just an introduction to today's topic. Inshallah in our final podcast we will be looking, taking a look back at the year in review. So just a quick snapshot of uh, 2021 and what the year has brought for us. Some of the key issues that we'll be looking at um, are, of course, um, President Biden. We look at Afghanistan. We look at the Taliban. We look at a couple of other key issues, which I don't want to spoil for you. So, off to our introduction video, and we'll be back in a jiffy.
1: Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi barakatuh ladies and gentlemen. So, uh, as Sufyan mentioned, we do have a very exciting guest with us today. Um, we've got brother Rashad Mohammed Saleh. Um, He's been a journalist for 21 long years. Uh, he started initially in local newspapers in the United Kingdom before moving into TV journalism with London Weekend Television. He then went to work at Al Jazeera's New English website in Qatar, Coming back to the UK a few years later, he became Head of News at Islam Channel between 2005 to seven. Then he moved on to Press TV, where he was Head of News in London five years, and currently serves as the editor of the independent Muslim news website, Five Pillars, who, I must say, do some fantastic work, mashallah. Um, they are a wonderful outlet. They've been doing some... Uh, Very good work uh, on a few fronts, particularly this year, but uh, we'll touch upon some of those as we go through our podcast, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Thank you for being with us today, Brother Roshan. Uh, Thank you for taking the time out. It's a pleasure to have you. as Alaikum, Brother Ansar.
0: Okay, so um, as I mentioned, um, look, there's a lot that's happening this year. It was another year that was marked by COVID and its implications. I suppose one of the major ones of which was online learning, Um, but in news and current affairs, we had um, a lot happen with our Uyghur brothers and sisters. We had, of course, Afghanistan, the takeover of Taliban and what Afghanistan has looked like since then, Um, and a few other key issues that we'll get to in the course of our podcast. But on the note of Afghanistan, you've recently returned from a trip to Afghanistan. I think that would be the apt point to start uh, this conversation. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about the context of your visit um, and uh, what you saw when you were there, something share with us, your experiences.
2: Yes, well, I guess it was, in many ways, the biggest story of the year for the Ummah and uh, I just wanted to get out there. Um, but I didn't go straight away because uh, it's not a country that I've been to before or have much experience operating in, so I wanted certain guarantees. I wanted to do things kind of in, a, in the proper way. So uh, it took me about two months of negotiations to actually get an invite uh, from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, the Islamic Emirate Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So I flew to Doha, got my visa from Doha, and then flew into uh, Af- uh, Kabul from Doha uh, on a, a special flight because there aren't many kind of regular commercial flights, um, you know, from the outside world into Afghanistan. So this was a flight just for journalists, for aid workers, for dignitaries, and that's how I got in. And, um, yeah, alhamdulillah, you know, wherever I go, brothers, you know, the mainstream media has one kind of perspective. And when I go and see for myself, it's usually completely different. Yeah. And I think that was the case in Afghanistan as well. And obviously, you know, when I got there, everyone was sending me messages. Are you okay? Are you stay safe? All that kind of stuff. Even, you know, family and friends and whatever. But it's not a war zone. It's, it's safe. It's secure. It's been as secure as it's been for 40 years. Uh, War is not the problem there anymore. I mean, you know, in the last 40 years, hundreds or thousands of people have been dying every day as a direct result of war and the consequences of war. That's not happening now. There are sporadic kind of Daesh, ISIS-K attacks, but, you know, and some of them are quite deadly, but they're not happening every day, you know? So generally we can say that Afghanistan, alhamdulillah, for the first time in nearly 40 years or over 40 years is at peace. But despite that, you know, there are so many problems. And the main, okay. the main problem is the economic problem because it's literally facing economic catastrophe as a result of sanctions being isolated by the outside world. People haven't been paid for months and months, you know, government salaries. Uh, we have 28 million people on the verge of, you know, starvation or food insecurity, according to the World Food Program. So there's, there's, there's positives and there's negatives. I mean, the Taliban are not the scary bunch that everyone makes them out to be. They're being quite soft with the population. They're forgiving all those, I would call them, traitors and collaborators that ultimately sold the country to foreigners. They're not going after them in a, in a systematic way. They're trying to build a nation. They're not the Taliban of the 90s. But at the same time, um, you know, there are, there are huge problems in that in that country which pose a bigger threat to the Taliban Um, and the new Islamic emirate than, you know, uh, security.
0: Yeah. You mentioned the economic problem. Um, I imagine, obviously, you had, uh, you sorted out your accommodation. Were you staying with friends or you were there? Um, You must have mixed with some locals there. Can you explain to us what does the economic problem look like for the average person?
2: Yes. I mean, of course, that's all I was doing, mixing with locals. I mean, um, I didn't really know that many people uh, in the country before I left. But when I got there, I, I found so many friends and, and people saw that I was there. Uh, people from London and they they were Afghans and they were sorting me out. I stayed in a hotel. I stayed in a quite nice hotel, um, which was empty. Uh, it was a hotel that was populated by aid workers, by Americans, by Brits uh where there were like um you know western style parties beforehand oh, and cool. i was one of the only guests there in an empty hotel uh, <laughs> would was be like good good to have style. your
0: best guest in a long time huh i hope you yeah, asked for the, the penthouse
2: suite <laughs> uh, well it was cheap it was like it was like fifty dollars a night uh, in a kind of a five-star hotel and oh, they bad. were taking that kind of price because no one was staying and um yeah it was it, it was a secure i mean i wanted a secure accommodation so it was I mean, when you go to Kabul, everything is behind high walls. Uh, there's loads of security, but that existed before the Taliban. That, that's been there for, for years and years. So this hotel was back from the road. There was a high wall. There was a blast barrier. And there were very few guests, you know, myself, one or two other European journalists, who, by the way, are allowed to work completely freely in Afghanistan. There's no restrictions on their work, even though most of them are actually demonizing the Taliban. Mm. Uh, and a few aid workers, and, and that was it. Um, but yeah, I, I, was, I, I, was, I was remarking to my, um, my translator that I was probably one of the only Brits in the last 20 years that's been in Kabul that hasn't lived, you know, kind of, uh, you know, gone around with a security detail, you know, and <laughs> yeah. um, literally been mixing freely in the markets, in the masjids, uh, in the streets. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't sugarcoat it, uh, brothers. People are desperate. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't know where the next meal is coming from. And, and government workers, I would say, millions and millions of government workers haven't been paid for about three or four months. And some most aren't turning up to work. Uh, mm-hmm. And the ones that do turn up to work, they're just doing it to serve their nation. Um, schools, you know, I mean, they are, schools and, and and I mean, economic life is going on, but not in a normal way. And mm-hmm. the people that are turning up are literally turning up to serve their nation and no other reason. Um, and everyone's desperate. There's no cash in the economy. Nothing coming in from outside. It's very hard to get money into the country. So it's it's a very bad situation. And I think I mean a lot of a lot of uh, Western Muslims, um, you know, were saying to me, "Oh, why aren't the Taliban enforcing Sharia quickly yeah. enough? They should be like literally forcing women to wear hijab. And look, that woman's wearing loose hijab. She should be, you know." And you know, that's not their priority at the moment. Their priority is literally to kind of feed people to make sure people yeah. aren't starving this winter because the winters are very harsh in Afghanistan. So it's a very tough situation. No one has money and everyone's seeking to leaving the country.
1: Unfortunately,
2: mm-hmm. massive brain drain already happened. Uh, hundreds of thousands have already left uh, since August. But everyone's, everyone that has the opportunity is thinking, what's my plan B? How do I get out of the country? Anyway, just get out of the country and find a new life abroad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I guess...
1: Uh, As you've alluded to, that's not a function of security, that's a function of economy. It's just, you know, as you mentioned, food on the table. What would you say, my question is, um, what would you say was your number one most interesting interaction, be it with someone, you know, everyday person on the street or official in Afghanistan during the visit? Was there something that stood out, something that perhaps made you say wow or got you thinking?
2: Well, I mean, there are so many. I mean, I remember the first day I got there, um, I was in a meeting with um, a gentleman called Abdul Qahar Balkhi, who has an Australian accent for some reason. Uh, he's a Taliban. Uh, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, and he had a bit of an Aussie accent. I thought, have you, t- have you spent time in Australia here? I asked Maybe him, we can, he can have him on the directly. convo.
1: He'd, he'd fit right in.
2: Well yeah, um I mean, uh he's the deputy spokesman for the foreign ministry. And we were sitting in a room, myself and two other journalists from France, and he was giving us the spiel, you're free to work, you can do whatever you want. Please just just kind of adhere to Islamic red lines. Please don't lie, please don't sensationalise. But even if you do, we're not gonna stop you. (laughs) We're just kind of beseeching you, please, please, please and um which i thought was great and um and then he started addressing comments to the french journalists um and he started um getting a bit sarcastic and he was saying like you know, he was talking about all the false stories that the the, ma- the mainstream media reported on afghanistan about how the taliban are trying to kill everybody and how um you know the, the they're selling uh young girls to um you know as child brides and all these false stories even the ban on education there's no actual ban on the education mm. maybe we'll get back to that in a, in, a, in a little while um and obviously the his comments he was talking to me but he knew who i was um so they really were directed at the french jones and um and the french and then he started going on about french which is the home of the masseuds and obviously france has this love affair with um Ahmad Shah Massoud basically he was on the French paylo- payroll as well yeah. as the CIA payroll and this is a, a central opposition to the Taliban so he was he was saying to the you know the French journalist oh why don't you go to Panjshir you can continue your love affair with the with the Massouds <laughs> you know and um and they obviously knew what he was saying and they were kind of getting really disgruntled but it was just nice to see the mainstream media taking down a peg or two I was just yeah. laughing inside to be honest you know and um because, you know, obviously the mainstream media, they do go there with an agenda. And their agenda is to demonize Islam and Muslims and the Taliban. Obviously, a lot of them re- represent defeated nations like Britain and, and, uh, and, the, and the Americans. So they obviously go there with an agenda. And, and this Taliban official was kind of exposing their agenda. So I quite like that. There are many other incidents, brother. I mean, brother, I mean obviously, um, there's loads of collaborators, unfortunately. Um, You know, in in Kabul especially, Kabul is a very kind of secular, liberal, like capital cities in most countries. They're more secular, they're more liberal, they're less religious perhaps than the countryside. Were you you just in Kabul or were you elsewhere as well? I went to Jalalabad as well. Unfortunately, I didn't travel. uh, Jalalabad is about three hours away from Kabul towards the Pakistani border. Uh, And that's the only place I traveled outside of Kabul. Um, mainly because it's quite difficult to travel at the moment. And I didn't have the requisite permissions until right at the end. Um, yeah. And even getting to Jalalabad was quite quite, quite a, a chore with so many checkpoints. So I didn't travel, but inshallah, I will go back and I'll travel around the country. But yeah, C- Kabul, um, you know, ultimately, if, if one city saw the benefits of occupation, it was Kabul. You know, yeah. simply because they poured quite a lot of money in there. And the deal was, you work for us, you collaborate with us, we'll give you jobs. Mm-hmm. So there, there were a lot of people in Kabul that, I have to say, probably missed the Americans, you know, because economically, they're not work, they not didn't love them otherwise, but, but ultimately they gave them jobs. Um, yeah. And I didn't notice that through your, your reporting because I was watching the
1: videos as they came out, and mashallah, yourself and Five Villas were doing a, an outstanding job, sort of showing a slide of things that we... Weren't ordinarily seeing through the mainstream media. So, first of all, to you guys, to yourself, and five pillars for that. But um, I did notice that what you're saying. So, there would be, as I was watching the videos, you'd hear most voices saying that, yep, yeah, look, things have stabilized a bit. You know, it's not like the world thinks with the Taliban, things are going okay. We do have problems. And then every now and then you'd have an interjecting voice saying, oh, look, things were better with the Americans. <laughs> um, so, yeah. It was really interesting to see those voices in there as well. And I guess as part of your profession as being a journalist, you can't put aside that it's critical to include that aspect of things as well. But as you're mentioning, I guess we need to understand the back end.
2: Yeah, I mean, that proves as well that they're willing to say that on camera is that, you know, the Taliban are are literally they're not going after people. I mean, they've had a general amnesty for people that literally worked with the Americans, the Brits. Mm. There might be a few kind of high ranking officials who literally have so much blood on their hands that there have been reprisals, unofficial type reprisals, which doesn't really surprise me because that happens in any kind of, yeah. you know, after any regime change, after a war kind of situation. But generally, we can say that the Taliban have been incredibly soft towards those that uh, worked with the foreigners. Um, yeah, I mean, people people were more candid with me off camera, I must admit, because obviously there is a bit of reticence on camera. Uh, and they were all basically saying. I mean, a lot of them in Kabul were saying that you know we we've got no future here. We need to leave the country, uh, you know, for for ourselves, for our our families. We need to have some kind of future. Um, and a lot of them said, that, you know, they were remorseful. We didn't want to work with the Americans, but we were desperate. We yeah. need to put food on the tables. Uh, and but. I think we have to remember that the vast majority of Afghans didn't work with the occupiers Uh Um, and a lot of them opposed and gave their lives in resisting and fighting. And I would say Kabul is probably majority anti-Taliban city. But Afghanistan as a whole, um, I would say most people are, you know, and I'm guessing here, obviously, I'm not an expert after three weeks in Afghanistan. Um, But I would say as a whole, most Afghans are happy that the occupation is over. Yeah, uh, They are happy that the occupiers and the foreigners are gone, um, and, they're, you know, and they're also um, happy that, you know, uh, because, you know, Islam is deeply embedded in Afghanistan. There's not this deep tradition of secularism that we might see in some bordering countries. They're also happy that there is a new, you know, Islamic Afghanistan, that they, they you know, they completely would accept Sharia law, no problem whatsoever. Um, but they are fearful because of the economic situation yeah, um, yeah. and what that means to themselves and their, their families.
1: Sorry, just one question on, on what you were mentioning. So when you say that Kabul is mostly anti-Taliban, what's the extent of that anti-sentiment? Is, a, is it a really sort of vicious anti-sentiment, like get them out, we don't want them, bring back someone else? No. Or is it more sort of a, uh, okay, we don't really, but, you know, we'll make do. What's, what's, How strong is that sentiment? Just to get a picture of, of how it is.
2: Well, I think, I think people do remember the Taliban in the nineties, uh, who were harsh, uh, and they did go around like whipping people on the streets. And I mean, there there was exaggeration, but at the same time, there was more than a kernel of truth in, uh, what the Taliban were like in the nineties. Obviously, they, they did harbor, you know, international terrorists that attacked other countries and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but this is not the same Taliban. They they really have learned, you know, um, uh, over the last 20 years, and they've become a lot more pragmatic. I think there is a split in the Taliban as well between the, one would say that the Haqqani faction, the the emphasis is more on kind of resistance and no compromise, and the Baradar faction, which is more about diplomacy and opening to the outside world, and compromise, not not on Islamic red lines, but compromising where you can compromise, and maybe not, you know, being quiet on certain issues like the Uyghurs. Obviously they yeah. needed the help from China. They're not going to start criticizing the Gulf nations for all the stuff they're getting up to because they need the, need the help. Even the West, you know, they take, well, help from the West as well. Yeah. Uh, and they would, they would be a little bit quiet on certain things because of that as well. So it's, it's, it's a different Taliban. But I think some people, yeah, thought this is going to be the Taliban of the nineties. And it's not. It's clearly not. There's no people, are, the, the populace are not in danger from the Taliban. Uh, and, and even a lot of anti-Taliban people were saying to me, one thing that's gone is corruption now. You know, this is mm-hmm. a, a just administration. And, and they're suffering as well. You know, the, the Taliban officials are not getting paid loads of money. They're hardly getting any salaries at all. All these uh, Taliban foot soldiers, a man in checkpoints 24-7, they're not getting paid any salaries. Yet they're turning mm-hmm. up to keep the nation safe. Um, so, yeah, there's some people who are just quite secular as well in Kabul. They're just not very religious, you know. And it's kind of, I mean, they're, they're Muslims, but, but obviously it's more of a kind of go to Jumma thing on a Friday and not much yeah. else. And they resent, you know, they might resent Islamic, they might prefer secular rule. They might prefer the Americans and, you know, westernization. Maybe they want Kabul to be like London and Paris, you know. Mm. Um, and others are purely, while they accept Sharia and they, all, they, accept, they don't mind the Taliban from that point of view, they just think that Taliban is back for business. You know, like yeah. my hotel, for example. You yeah. know, the, loads of money was coming in. It was full uh, while the Americans were there. Now it's empty. So people are being put out of business because yeah. of the Taliban.
1: So it's not so, personal, yeah. it's just business, <laughs> as yeah. they say. So one last question from me on the uh, Afghanistan side, I think. Just curious to know, um, do you speak Pashto or Dari or anything... So how did no, you how did you communicate? I'm just curious to know um, yeah. how did you manage to get your message across and sort of receive the messages, talk to people in a natural way.
2: I had a fix and a translator, so uh, I okay. had I employed uh, two Afghan guys who both sp- spoke uh, fluent um, uh, Pashto and uh, Dari. Uh, obviously, Dari is the national language; it's the language that is spoken mostly in Kabul. Uh, but Pashto is the language of the Taliban, basically. Okay, they all speak yeah. Dari as well. Uh, And it's the language of, you know, when you go close to the Pakistani border and and the south. Um, So, yeah, interestingly, one of my 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 translator was Shia. Uh, He was not Hazara Shia, but he was Sadat Shia, which is a a tribe. And he was and I thought, okay, this might be a problem with the Taliban. Uh, And I was thinking, should I employ a a translator who's Shia? Um, And I I literally was thinking, you know, it could be a real problem. Um, And and it wasn't, you know, and he was. They knew, he was, we were going to ministries every day, we We're interacting with Taliban every day, and they were curious about him, he was curious about them, and they were having very frank discussions, which they were translating for me, and, you know, their attitude was like, these are our Afghan brothers, you know, we have differences of opinion on certain things, but, you know, we're going to build a new Afghanistan together. So that was interesting for me. Uh, but yeah, um, obviously, I, I speak Arabic, um, so, uh, kind of, I did, I did encounter quite a few Arabic speakers, especially in religious seminaries and whatever. So that's how I did a few interviews in Arabic. Obviously, you will find a, a few people that will speak English even on the streets and are keen to speak English as well with you. But yeah, the majority of people, the vast majority will only speak Dari or Pashto and I, I, I manage with my uh, translation fixer. Nice.
0: Uh, brother, um, I want to sort of move out a little bit um, to get a bit more information, but to see what we can bridge Um, out into the other regions from outside of Afghanistan. I think it was in late August that um, Erdogan was the first, I think, of major political powers to uh, recognise and to establish establish diplomatic ties with um, the Taliban. Um, There was talk in mid, uh, around, I would say, about half half a month or a month after that, there was talk of um, doing something with those diplomatic ties. The Taliban said they would... Um, welcome back people, uh, Afghans who had left to Turkey. Um, and then, I think it was last month or a month and a half ago, there was actually a meeting of, of a Turkish envoy with the Taliban in Doha. So that diplomatic process with Turkey was, was has been strong. Um, how do you recognise, because I do want to start to talk a little bit about the politics that's, uh, that's gone on in Turkey, uh, and some of the tensions rife in Turkey as well, but um, as a bridge between those two discussions, how do you see the diplomatic relations between Turkey and Afghanistan?
2: Well, to be honest, um, I think that a lot of countries would recognize the Islamic Emirate tomorrow if they weren't scared of the Americans. And Turkey is one of them. So I think Qatar would open an embassy. Iran would open an embassy. Um, Who else? Saudi Arabia? The UAE? The UAE is going to open an embassy very soon. Um... And um, China and Russia as well. So we're talking regional, major regional powers like Iran and Turkey. Uh, and we're talking about superpowers like Russia and China. And they all want to, to, to recognize the Islamic Emirate, but they're scared of American sanctions. So, I mean, that just shows you how powerful America is, right? If they can, you know, they literally control the world financial system. Um, and... Yeah, so uh, it's a real issue because I think un, un, obviously nations like that, they can unlock billions of dollars in funding, can't they? Whereas individuals like us, we can't do very much. I mean, I have a few thoughts about how individuals can help as well. Um, but that, this is really what the Taliban needs. I think with specifically talking about Turkey, obviously there, there were a, a few strained relations because they, they, I think Turkey had a role um, with NATO, being a NATO power a a small role during the occupation even. And they had some kind of uh, role in the airports as well. So there is a little bit of resentment, I think, on the part of the Islamic Emirate of Turkey's, you know, role perhaps being a NATO member uh, with the occupation, but they're being quite pragmatic as well. And I think, um, yeah, I I think all the neighbouring countries especially, they don't want to see every other country move in at their expense so they're all eyeing Afghanistan. They all have their interest in Afghanistan and they all want some kind of fu- um, stake in the future of Afghanistan. Uh, but at the same time, they're wary of moving too fast and alone as well, because that could, could trigger financial sanctions from the Americans.
0: Yeah. Um, with, with Turkey itself, um, there's been a lot that's been happening in Turkey um, I think it was um, Qatar hosting 250 Turkish troops recently. Um, mm. There was news of that, um, but obviously Turkey has a lot on its mind as well. Where you have the lira dropping to about 13 or 14 US dollars, um, it's been hitting Erdogan hard in some areas. Obviously, and then he has to consider domestic considerations and whatever else. Um, but I did want to—I uh, did want to get your thoughts a little bit about. Um, not so much domestic Turkish politics, but the role that Turkey is playing in the region. Um, Afghanistan is one of the issues, but of course, uh, Turkey has got its eyes on other regional issues. Can you maybe comment a little bit about um, Turkey's role in
2: the region, in, in 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 the Middle East and in Asia more generally? Well, I'll do my best. I'm not an expert on Turkey, um, but I obviously have been there many times and um, I've done a few... Uh, reports there as well from there and I think I mean what can I say I think I think there are perhaps three pivotal powers in the Middle East um one is Iran one is Saudi Arabia and one is Turkey and I think then there are secondary powers uh like Egypt like Qatar like UAE and and others uh but the three main powers literal pivotal powers with with huge armies um economic power military power, uh, political power are Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Turkey. And there's always going to be a rivalry between those three. Obviously, Erdogan, I actually read a book on him recently, uh, and he's an arch pragmatist, isn't he? I mean, he is, he's ultimately an Islamist in his bones. He's a practicing Muslim, a believing Muslim, uh, very strongly as well. Uh, and his politics is Islamist politics. However, he is willing to make... Any virtually any compromise um, to arrive, arrive at a... I mean, basically, how can I put this? Maybe this is a bit controversial, but in a way, he's willing to, to walk the path of Kufa to arrive at a destination called Islam. That's not now, controversially that. put at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, that process. I think you have to walk, walk the path of Islam and, and yeah. let Allah take care of the results. But this is uh, Erdogan's methodology, and, and give him some credit. He's had a lot of success in, in Islamizing a very deeply secular society, you know. And, uh, but at the same time, he's still willing to shake hands with Ariel Sharon, as he did in the past, and have those ties with Israel, still a member of NATO, um, you know, and many other dodgy things. So it's, for me, it's, it's a kind of a controversial record. But the fact is that this guy is very popular uh in the Muslim world. I think it's because we don't have really have any heroes. Um yes. so we, we, we grab onto whoever we does some good, you know? So someone like Imran Khan is very popular as well, despite all the perhaps dodgy things. Um and I think Erdogan is perhaps if there's one leader in the Muslim world, especially for Sunnis, that sticks out, it's probably Erdogan. Uh, and we overlook the 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 dodgy bits and we just focus on the good bits. Um, but obviously he 's trying to reassert you know turkey as a as a major power and he 's had a lot of success in doing that um, and i think I think secular Turks you know they 're extremely worried about him, and they can 't wait for him to fall ill or die or there's there 's a lot of focus on his health at the moment um i mean obviously he 's dying he 's not that old I think he 's in his uh, early sixties or, or mid sixties so still a long way to go inshallah um but yeah he's just made i mean i think i think after ataturk um he is the most pivotal figure in yeah. modern turkish history um mm-hmm. and he's definitely moved turkey in a direction which well first of all economically a lot more powerful he's put the secularists and the army in its box no more coups well apart from a recent one a couple of years <laughs> ago which yeah, yeah. um but yeah you could say that um he from where he started to where He's got now. He's definitely moved Turkey to be much more of an assertive um, country with its with its tentacles in in many different regions. Um, you know, so it's they call it neo Ottomanism. Yeah, don't they? yeah, yeah. Uh, So they have a presence in Iraq. They have a presence in Syria, in Africa. Um, you know, in Afghanistan. So yeah, he's definitely made Turkey much more of a yeah assertive regional power.
1: Yeah, and then. Um they went on and made a particular television show that just made them even more popular around the world. Well, Ertigl, like, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I've yeah. watched, I, I think I stopped at episode 365. I got bored after <laughs> 365 episodes. Only 365? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, look,
1: I want to quickly ask about uh, some events earlier on in this year. It seems like um, it, because it was on the end of last year and this year, uh, it seems like it was a lifetime ago, but it was this year. Um so I'm talking about um the inauguration of President Joe Biden and mm. uh the massive dramas with the uh, Trump supporters storming the Capitol um and all the uh the myriad of issues that came out of that and then sort of uh Biden's first 100 days in power and sort of where he is now um and there's a lot of mixed sentiment in the post Trump American world um not really post-Trump, you can't really say that because his, what he brought, his legacy and everything, what, what he stood for, still permeates throughout. But what would you say about uh, Biden's presidency in 2021, now that we've had effectively a year, how do you think he's done, how do you think America stands, uh, especially after the deeply controversial Trump presidency?
2: Well... Yeah, we did focus, five pillars, we did focus quite a lot on the American elections at the time. And um, I personally think that it's good for the Muslim world that there's alternation between the Democrats and the Republicans. I don't like it when the Republicans are in power for eight years or the Democrats are in power for eight years. I like to keep a little bit of internal chaos. I think that's good.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, just
2: keep the Americans divided, fighting amongst themselves, and then they're not worrying about us. Not so just worrying, I, I, then they're not, they're not fighting us elsewhere. Yeah. Well, exactly. about fight
1: inside, Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, I, I, I wasn't sure who I wanted to win, uh, whether it was, true. I mean, obviously most American Muslims voted for Biden. I think it was something like 70%. And, and they were very much because they, they obviously there was quite a lot of pressure on themselves. So logically they wanted to vote for the guy who didn't hate them as much. Um, and But if you looked at worldwide, I think a lot of Muslims actually wanted Trump to win uh, because they felt that he was dividing America, uh, pitting American against American. And as long as that was happening, they were internally focused. They weren't focused on the Muslim world. The worst case scenario is when you have eight years of um, America with economic prosperity, everyone on the same page then that's when they start thinking about, oh, should I invade Iraq? Should I invade Afghanistan? That's when you get should a war I, on terror. Should I, yeah, should I start these war of choice? Not these wars of necessity, but these wars of choices. So um, I, I think Biden, obviously, with corona, has been a, a president which he's been very low-key. Yeah. Some may say, alhamdulillah, he's been very low-key. We haven't heard much of him. Uh, we don't know a, a lot about what he's done because he's just been focusing on the coronavirus pandemic in America. And just very much kind of not really focusing on foreign policy at all. He's hardly been abroad, um, you know, from the climate conference he was in, in Scotland, I think. But, but he's not been a globe-trotting president. He's been focusing very tightly on domestic policy. And I think um, given what happened in those four years of Trump, especially with the normalization process between the Gulf countries uh, and Arab nations in Israel and, and other stuff, you know, the high intentions with Iran and whatever, you know, um, I mean, Trump literally was a loose cannon and and he he was a guy that, you know, could literally take a a, a catastrophic decision at a moment's notice. So I think that is extremely dangerous, uh, whereas Biden does think things through a little bit more. So I think for the Ummah, for the Muslim world, it's been a bit of a relief simply because he's not been talking about us. But has he changed, um, you know... Um, Trump's policies? Well, no, he hasn't really, apart from on climate change, maybe. Uh, But in terms of something that pertains to the Ummah, then, you know, he hasn't reversed those normalization deals, has he, with Israel? Um, And, you know, he hasn't um, actually reversed any of Trump's policies pertaining to the Muslim world. But what he has done is he's just not really focusing on us, which I think is a welcome relief. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely agree with that.
1: Um, I, I was going to su do you have anything to well, i was about? just
0: i was just going off one of the points he he was mentioning about um that important um, abraham accords um in 2020 when a bunch of um, what can we call it psychophantic gulf states went on um, the recognition train <laughs> and recognized israel um, it was i found it very interesting how that that um that train kept chugging along um even after um you know even after that recognition the parade had ended as recently as um you know 15th November we had we've got joint um exercises naval exercises um we've got warships from UAE Bahrain Israel and the US you know engaging in these joint military exercises and if i'm not mistaken correct me if i'm mistaken but you know, we've had um, openly we've had intelligence sharing, military, diplomatic relations between these Gulf countries, Israel and the U.S., and it's sort of gone on. Um, so I don't think it's something that can be attributed to to Trump per se. It's 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 an American, of course, policy, um, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's it's a pity that um, unfortunately that that the Gulf countries have gone on with it um up until the modern day up until like today uh, up as recently as last yeah. week um what are your thoughts on that that's going to be something well, to, think... to keep our eyes on i suppose moving forward
2: well i mean i talked about collaborators and trainers in, in Kabul, but you know <laughs> the, the, the collaborators and trainers of the Ummah are clearly the Gulf countries aren't they um, and they've embraced this uh i mean this was signposted for years by the way Um, you know, as early as 2016, I remember doing stories on this, uh, because they were, they were having low level, um, uh, um, non-official meetings in conferences around the world between Israeli and UAE officials and, you know, or, you know, or, or cultural figures. It's all kind of a signposting thing to a normalization deal. That's why I'm always, even in, in our context, you know, um, as civil society activists in our countries, whether it be Australia, the UK or elsewhere in, in the West, I, I'm, I'm against what I call what I call local normalisation with Zionist organisations. Yeah. Yep. We should stay away from that because it's a prelude to something bigger and it's part of their agenda. They want to um, you know, have little kind of uh, cooking chicken, chicken soup dinners with, with Muslims <laughs> uh, and all that kind of stuff, you know, kind of you know, not non-offensive kind of meetups as a prelude to something bigger. Because as soon as, as, soon as you start doing that and making friends with them, you stop criticizing them. You know, and it becomes more difficult to criticize someone you know personally. And yeah, so I think the Gulf nations. I think there are obviously several Arab nations normalised with Israel, but some did it with open arms and willingly and happily. Some did it through force. So yeah. Sudan and Morocco only did it because they were being economically blackmailed. You know, they didn't want it. They wouldn't have chosen to do it, I don't think, especially Sudan. Yeah. Um, they they did it literally because they were under threat of catastrophic uh, financial sanctions by the Americans, especially Sudan. Whereas the UAE, and I think they are the main, you know, they're, they're spearheading this, even more than Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Obviously, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, they're all in cahoots. But the UAE and MBZ and Mohammed bin, what is his name? MBZ, what's his name? Uh... Mohammed bin Zayed, yeah, yeah. Uh, the de facto, whatever, ruler of, of uh, the UAE. Um, he's the real brains behind this normalization process. And it's a warm normalization for Israel. They honestly believe that they have um, kind of shared cultural values. And uh, it won't be a kind of, a, you know, the Egypt and Jordan normalizations, they're long standing, but the people still hate each other. Egyptians still hate Israelis, yeah, and the Jordanians still hate Israelis, but they have a peace um deal. Whereas the UAE leadership, they actually love the Israelis, and the Bahrainis, they they they're, they're like minded you know, That's they're, they're a whole friends. new level of selling out. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're friends. They're they're literally friends, and they think. And it's not just kind of a shared uh, aversion to Iran or a shared kind of alliance with the west that unites them literally these people are on the same page at so many levels um i mean i would say to people um you know and and because they have such economic power uh they can kind of blackmail other nations more recalcitrant nations to follow their lead i would say don't go to dubai anybody i don't i mean i i'm 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 a a bit kind of um of a fascist when it comes to this but when i see people (laughs) going to dubai i call them out i name even shame i say do not go to dubai I'm saying this, by the way, as someone who unfortunately just went to Dubai the other day because <laughs> I had to. <laughs> I was forced to go to Dubai. because. Oh, my, so my we will
1: we, we'll name and shame you then. We'll say that. Yeah, I, I'm going to
2: say this because someone's going to find me out and I'm going to say it and I'm going to give the reason why. Basically, my flight to Doha was cancelled, my return flight, and I was left with no choice but to transit through Dubai. Um, and I had to stay there, unfortunately, for one evening. Uh, and I spent no money whatsoever when I was there, and I just got out of the country. So I, I was forced to go. But anyway, um, if you have a choice, do not go to Dubai uh, or Bahrain, or I mean, I've been on Hajj. I don't really need to go on Hajj. I've been on Hajj twice, so khalas, I don't really need to go again. Oh, yeah. um, if if we weren't that's... held hostage by Hajj, then yeah, you yeah, boycott Saudi completely. So there are so many beautiful Muslim countries to go to on holiday. You know, please. Please, brothers and sisters, don't give these guys any money. They need to be punished. They need to know that there is a price to pay for their treachery. Even if that price is they're not going to get so many Muslim tourists going there. The, the Muslims will boycott Emirates. Don't fly it, Emirates. I think don't it's fly Gulf
0: Air. I think it's called the Little Sparta because of the number of military interventions that they engage in um, yeah. Kosovo, Afghanistan, Libya. Uh, Syria, Yemen, Somalia—the list just goes on. UAEs in all of them. I know. Yes, I mean,
2: um, I mean, look, they're just. Um, I mean, this is a country. I mean, I went to Dubai as a kid in in the eighties, and uh, there was nothing there. <laughs> There's nothing yeah, there, yeah. you know. And it's just they've just been blessed or perhaps cursed by an incredible amount of wealth, mm-hmm. um, and it's gone to their heads, and they've spent it not on. Um, improving the welfare of the Ummah, you know, by building schools around the, the Muslim world or taking care of health, edu- uh, health systems, but they're building the world's tourist building. You know, they're getting a, a stupid, um, sporting events like the World Cup, you know. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're just, they're, they're people without a, a vision apart from just kind of self aggrandizement. Uh, I, I went to the, uh, this is Qatar, I, I went to the National Museum of Qatar. Um, while I was waiting to get on flights flight to Kabul. And the whole museum is dedicated to what Qataris, how Qataris view their, their country and their history. Well, 90% of the population of Qatar since the 1950s, 1960s, are guest workers, yeah, okay? Yeah. There was nothing on them whatsoever. So this is the mentality of these countries, you know, and they're completely out of step. Um, with the with the Umar. I can't wait for the oil to run out. I can't uh, yeah. wait for the gas to run out. You know, because literally, then these countries which don't deserve the blessings that Allah has given them, you know, literally they will go back to camel herding. Yeah, yeah, and I uh, what they can up. do then?
1: No,
0: we're on the we're on the same page when it comes to that. Um, especially after they were on the wrong side of that uh, petition. Uh, with, the U- with the Uyghur versus China government uh, yes, issue. Yes. They joined 36 other nations to say, no, we're defending China on this one. Um, yeah. They've just been on the wrong uh, wrong side far too often. Um,
2: but everyone, everyone's scared of, it's, it's like I said, everyone was scared of America. I think Muslim nations are scared of China as well because, mm. you know, they, they do, like Pakistan, for example, is trying to pivot more towards away from America, and it needs China, so Imran Khan is obviously saying some really stupid things. Um, obviously we know that you probably privately think something different, um, but you know, at the same time I I hate to say it, but guys like you and me we're not running countries, are we? Mm. We're just commentators on the sidelines. It's actually quite difficult to run a country and sometimes you have to put the national interest of your country first. Obviously, I, I don't, you know obviously while well, not completely not betraying the ummah or crossing Islamic red lines. But to us like, like Afghanistan, for example, I I understand them not being at the forefront of nations screaming about the Uyghurs. I, I get that. I hate it, but I get why they're doing it. And I also kind of get why Pakistan is doing it as well, even though I hate it. Yeah. Um, because what what is the alternative, brothers? It's 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 you know what China will do? They'll pull the plug. They'll just literally pull the financial plug. So I think we have to slowly move to a, a situation where Muslim countries are independent and can stand on their own two feet and maybe not expect too much from them. I mean, obviously, there are certain red lines like normalizing with Israel. Yeah, you know, you yeah. can never do that. Um, but where we can give a little bit of leeway to countries, then we should. I, I think personally, we should be criticizing Turkey more on the Uyghur issue than Pakistan Uh, because it's a stronger nation you know we should be criticizing Saudi Arabia maybe Iran maybe these countries that have a certain power and can stand on their own two feet let's have a go at them but I think let's leave Afghanistan and Pakistan alone for the time being.
1: Mm. It's it's an understandable point of view Uh, we we do see sort of where you're coming from on that Um, but I, I guess you're right you know very often they're stuck between a rock and a hard place and that rock and hard place are usually two superpowers. Um, not a very comfortable situation. Um, let me ask a, a different question now. Um, so considering we're doing a year in review, we can't uh, talk, we can't avoid talking about COVID. So uh, my quick question to you guys is how many waves have you had now? Because they just seem to be unending.
2: We've had, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know, about three or four waves. And obviously, all this on was it called Omicron or something? Yeah, Omicron, uh, that's,
1: a, that's a new one to be terrified yeah, of. All
2: Yeah, when I was coming back to, to Heathrow Airport the other day, all the uh, all the black people from the south of Africa would be profiled basically ah, yeah. by security, saying, oh, where have you come from? They're just going straight to the black people, uh, which uh, they, they didn't appreciate it, they. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's legitimized yeah, some mean, ugly look, things, potentially. Yeah, I mean, COVID's an interesting one, even journalistically for us, because I don't know what it's like in Australia, brothers, but... I would say the Muslim community is very divided over COVID um, yes, here. Yeah. And I would say maybe 40% of Muslims don't even believe it's a thing. And they think it's all a big conspiracy. And that, um, you know, it's being, you know, I mean, big companies are making loads of money. They're exploiting yeah. us. They're preparing uh, the new world for a great reset and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I- I'm not in that camp, um, by the way, because I well, just we think- have so they,
0: We have so calm for that. <laughs> You have what? Sorry, oh, we have we have some representatives of um, the anti-vaxxers.
2: Yeah, yeah, we yeah. definitely got no, that I crowd mean, as half, well. Yeah, it's 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 half the uh, umma, I think, in, in, in the United Kingdom. Yeah, uh, literally, um, we've we've taken some cop for this because I mean I mean there's, there's journalistically we're actually not allowed to um, platform anti-vaxxers. We actually get mm. sanctioned for that. There's wow. there's censorship. Okay. For that. Yeah, there's, there's censorship in the UK. And obviously, Five Pillars is under a lot of pressure anyway. anyway so if we pro, if we platformed an anti-vaxxer and gave, let's say, even 50-50 airtime to pro vax pro-vaxxer, anti-vaxxer, then we would actually get done for it and we'd get taken care wow. Okay. Uh, That's so, interesting. yeah. The, I, I, I don't agree with that. Uh, even though I'm not, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm double vaccinated. Uh, on balance, um, I, sorry, I we're going to have to that, see your vaccine passport to prove that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, I've, I've got it in my. I've actually got one. Yeah, but it's, um, it's all right, you can. Yeah, it. I, I'm double vaccinated. I, ultimately, I think you can only take the decision for yourself and your family. And I've taken the decision on the balance of probabilities. Um, this isn't a worldwide conspiracy because all the nations of the world are basically in the same boat. Everyone's getting vaccinated, you know, and um, and yeah. I'm, I'm not an expert, medical expert, or I guess, whatever. Sorry, just to
1: redirect the question a bit. Um, look, I'll, I'll tell you, honestly, personally, this is me, and, and I get this kind of sense as well amongst Muslims here that people are kind of just over it. We're just done with it. They're tired of it. Like, just yeah, talk are about something it, yeah. else. Like, I can tell you that in my sort of family WhatsApp threads, all anyone was ever doing was talking about covert pro anti-vax this vax, not like i was just done i muted every single one of those threads i said come back to me when you're over it like i'm done um and they're just people are sick nonsense. of it yeah i mean yeah. i
2: mean um i think uh, I, I like think what the you the did there by the way here, sick of it i caught the pun i I, <laughs> <laughs> I i think the consensus here in the uk is that you can't have total lockdowns anymore uh no matter what the situation is because it just won't be accepted, and um you know people can understand certain restrictions like mask wearing inside supermarkets or indoor areas, but they're not going to go for a complete lockdown like we had for the past yeah several months.
1: Well, uh, because had, you have to
2: find you sorry, have to find had, that you have to find that balance between you know kind of public health and continuing normal economic activity. Yeah, because we had the
1: worst of our lockdown, so even worse than last year, we had the worst of ours this year, where we were, I think, locked down four or five months or something like that. And that was at the same time when we were looking over at the UK and everything was opening and you were having the, I don't know, Freedom Days or whatever you call them, right, where everything was sort of normalising to an extent. Um, and he, we were sitting thinking, you know, what's going on? We're all stuck in our houses on Zoom and everything. Yeah. Else. Um but from, from your journalistic perspective, I guess, um, you, know, you guys obviously as Five Pillars are covering the stories that you feel uh, need to be covered and also that there is an interest in. Um, is COVID something that you would still continually cover or is that something that you'd
2: say, look, we can kind of give it cover it anymore. To that? Yeah. We hardly cover it anymore. I mean, we covered it loads at the beginning, uh, obviously. Um, and obviously the Muslim community was disproportionately affected here. uh because they tend to live in uh more socially deprived areas where maybe in one small house there might be kind of seven or eight people um and because they're they're kind of socially deprived anyway they had to go out to work you know and they were in many public facing jobs like you know taxi drivers um you know kind of takeaway workers working in shops so they didn't have the option of working from home you know um, so yeah, it was, it was a huge story, uh, amongst Muslims. It actually, it actually kind of exposed a certain racial apartheid in this country as well, uh, where racial minorities, not just Muslims, but black people and others, you know, uh, other communities were disproportionately affected by COVID compared to white people. Um, and obviously we're on a small, you, you guys are on a massive island, small population. You can spread out, can't you? And you, you probably kind of, you kind of live in big houses as well. Whereas we, we have kind of small accommodation here, um, especially in places like London. Um, So COVID spreads much quicker here. We have 60 million people in a small island. Um, So it's still a huge story, and and far too many people are dying, quite frankly, you know, way above what is acceptable. And I think the government did mishandle it, especially at the beginning, when they probably should have locked down a lot earlier, right at the beginning. Um, uh, But, yeah, the vaccination programme has been quite you know, a lot of people, like 90% of the population are vaccinated now. Yeah, it's similar here as well. Yeah, and you can't really travel. I mean, even if I didn't want to get vaccinated, I couldn't have traveled for that vaccine, you know, so I, I, it's a necessity for me. Um, but there's no kind of, um, there's no COVID passports or anything in the UK. Like when I went to Doha, you literally had a COVID passport. They wouldn't allow you into shopping malls or supermarkets or anywhere unless you could produce your COVID passport. Yeah, that's what we've got here uh, now. Oh, it? Yeah, I can see you're not happy about it. <laughs>
1: uh, look, it, it's you, that's the thing. Like you say that you've got to do what you got to do, um, and the, the unfortunate thing for me is that you know whether you're pro, anti, whatever it might be, right? Um, a lot of people, most have been forced into this position by virtue of necessity. Yeah. So you don't didn't really have a choice or an option, um, and so a lot of people just went along with it, regardless of their particular perspective on the matter from a health standpoint um but yeah that, that's what we're facing now we've got to come in and show our little app that shows double vax to get into this place or that um but yeah that's uh, that's just the way things are moving nowadays i guess and the way How do you going. guys feel i've
2: got a question for you guys i mean yes, i've never been sure. to australia um but um you're just you're just so far away do you feel disconnected from the umma just because of the physical distance Uh, look i would say not really
1: like because in in our community we still do share the same concerns we still uh, have exposure to the same media sources information so you know it's not like okay yes you guys are physically closer to a lot of Mm. what goes on but your reception and your experience of that is coming through screens and media and posts and you know articles and everything else Um, and that's kind of the same way that we're getting the info so yes, geographically we are more distant, but in terms of the actual information and the realities that we have projected towards us from every which way, um, it's almost the same kind of situation. And okay. so in that sense, I don't necessarily feel like it's it's a distance and that we feel disconnected. Um, yeah, I feel like the Muslim community here is generally fairly connected, like especially when you look at some of the hot issues that have occurred uh, with the Ummah in the recent past, we're talking about, you know, things like Syria, uh, Arab Spring, with the Uyghur issue, always the Palestine issue. Like when those things happen, Muslim communities here are impacted. We do feel mm-hmm. it, and there are prominent and loud voices, you know, addressing and talking about it. And, you know, we're going to have the same kind of differences and issues that you guys experience as well. We're going to have different opinions and takes and everything else. But yeah, look, we definitely. Do still feel it. My personal perspective is that uh, I feel like the Ummah or the the Muslim community here has sort of lost a bit of that spark, lost a bit of that vigor when it comes to taking on issues. And I'm not sure what I can put that down to, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe some general sense of apathy, some kind of comfort in the Western lifestyle or whatever it might be. Um, I, I think we've lost a bit of that spark, a bit of that fire in the belly that gets you going and really wanting to address and tackle issues uh, when they come, but we're not disconnected from it. I do feel like we are. Uh, mm. We do feel it. Maybe Sifjan's got I some think, more to add.
0: Yeah, I just want to add, I think um, my my understanding is it, it's, it, it's uh, actually always down to a question of one's mentality and one's, like, own disposition. So you could be bordering Syria and not care about it, uh, you know, in Turkey, for example, but, or you could be sitting hundreds of thousands of miles away and, you know, literally like lose sleep over the issue, have so much concern over it, protest for it night and day, you know, give charity for it, do, do everything you can, write, speak, everything, you know. Um, so it's really a question of mentality. I don't think the distance, um, it's just the beauty of iman, you know. Like if that is in your heart, and, and you know the question of what level of iman you have, um, and that gets projected then in your voice and in your activism and so yeah. forth. Yeah. Um, so you obviously you have all sorts in Australia as well. You've got your completely, you know, those. I don't want to. I don't want to categorise them, but you're I suppose categories of Muslims who, uh, w- with regards to their positions towards um, political activism and caring for the. Uh, issues of the ummah and so forth. But TNR, definitely, there's a a strong beating heart for the ummah in Australia as well. Alhamdulillah, Um, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Um, But I think one... Yeah.
2: Sorry, go on. No, no, you're right. No, I was going to say that I'm not sure whether you guys are experiencing this as well, but I think one uh, theme that I look back because before doing the show, I just had a kind of a 10-minute look at the Five Pillars website and the stories that we covered over the last year, and I think one big theme is the shrinking spaces for Muslims um, in, in especially Western societies. Uh, I think France is the obvious example, where literally um, it's turning into a fascist state, um, and they they closed they've closed down the 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 biggest uh, isl- anti-Islamophobia organisation in France for basically calling the state racist, believe it or not. Uh, and and they've also closed down the biggest humanitarian organisation in France as well, Muslim one called baraka City. They're closing down mosques, they're sanctioning imams, deporting them, closing down Islamic bookshops, and literally the space. And obviously, they they this is all ahead of the, the kind of um, a presidential election next year where Macron is trying to steal the right wing's clothes, and we have a presidential candidate Eric Zamor, who's a complete fascist, open Islamophobe riding very high in the polls we have marine le pen as well so this is the obvious example but i think this this same kind of um descent into secular fascism is also happening in the uk where we have shrinking spaces for muslims if you're a muslim activist i'm talking about a peaceful muslim activist now right just a muslim activist just just wants to hold on to the, the rope of islam uh doesn't want to bother anybody else doesn't want to target anybody else doesn't want to have any hate towards i don't know it could be the lgbt community or whatever but just yeah. wants to you know, say for example no we're not going to have the lgbt agenda imposed on us as a muslim community uh or it could be no we're gonna ad- we're gonna advocate for palestine and yes we're going to criticize israel uh we're n- no no hate speech against jews or anything like that but we're literally gonna exercise our rights as citizens just like any other citizen to be politically active that now is becoming difficult if you're a muslim you're getting literally sacked from jobs, you know, and, and Muslims can see certain high-profile cases in academia where they've been sacked for advocating for Palestine. Um, yeah. No anti-Semitism whatsoever, and, and they're scared to speak out, you know? So there's this self-censorship going on as well. Um, us, for example, uh, Dilly and myself on Five Pillars, we used to get inv- invited onto the, the mainstream media, the BBC and yeah, whatever, yeah, quite yeah. a lot. Yeah. And we're, we have been invited for like three or four years now. Uh, and I don't think it's because we perform badly. Uh, if I'm, uh, I'm not it's being deliberate. Arrogant. Without
1: question, it's deliberate.
2: Yeah. So there's yeah. a blacklist, and and now we have a situation in the UK where the kind of Muslims that are getting onto the mainstream media or are getting influential positions in civil society and elsewhere, you know, I mean, they're basically coconuts. You know, that's the only way I can, I <laughs> yep, can yep, describe yep. it. You know, and they they're not representative of the, the Muslim community, um, and and we have this thing, I don't know whether you have it in Australia, but in the UK, we have this tokenism kind of thing. So the way that let's say public institutions address a lack of racial diversity is not by, is, is basically by getting brown faces in. But those, right. brown, brown, those brown faces, they think like white people. They don't think like, you know, the Muslim community. Oh yeah, yeah. So they're not bringing, they're not bringing the, the cultural richness of their communities into those public institutions. All they're bringing is a brown and black face. Tokenism. Mm.
0: Yeah. We've definitely had that, what you were talking about, um, that tightening of the community and our Muslim spaces. Um, we've definitely observed, Hamza and I have spoken about it personally as well um, um, over a number of years, the last couple of years as well. So I would say if in a place as geographically isolated as Australia, we're witnessing that, uh, it's definitely got to be a global trend. Um, we've got, we've had the same sort of thing, Muslims who were, it just seemed a bit more conservative back in the days. I'm not even talking about the organization to which we belong, uh, but, you know, Hezbollah Tahrir, but also wider, the Muslim community, we used to have a, a spectra of, um, guests invited from the community. Uh, it's, it's sort of been that blacklist of, um, and time you have, you know, your, um, I guess because you've used the term, I can borrow it. Otherwise... I probably wouldn't use it on air, but coconut Muslims, <laughs> I'll put it on you. <laughs> but um we've had that. We've had those um sort of invited, almost like the template Muslim that's invited now, because that's the idea that they wish to project. Yeah. So definitely had that, that trend. That, trend. Um,
2: is that Imam Tawhidi joker still? Uh, He's still a, a bit low the key airway, these
1: days, to be honest. We haven't heard much, which is probably a phenomenally good thing. If we're honest, um, the quieter the I mean, better. I'll, I'll be
2: honest. I, he wouldn't. I think he wouldn't get on TV in in, in the UK. I think. Yeah. I think. I think. Um, he's so blatantly outrageous that yeah, even. Yeah. I mean. I mean. The the um the Islamophobia in the UK is is still quite sophisticated. It's there, but they're not. They're not dumb about it. Whereas yeah. it seems to me the, the the Australians a bit. They're a bit dumb, aren't they, about their Islamophobia? They'll just get any old matter on <laughs> I'll, I'll start <just laughs> anything and they'll lap it
1: up. <laughs> look, the thing is, I, I reckon that we're about five odd years behind you guys in sort of the Muslim community and the issues that we face. So we're at probably that more blatant dumb stage, right? Um, maybe the EDL kind of phase, right? Uh, we're, we're in that area. But look, as time goes on, I've no doubt it'll start going, unfortunately, in that direction as well. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I I kind of feel that we actually had a bit more of that sort of, um, we'll call them the coconut clashes um, earlier on, where, you know, there was, as I said, there was a a greater fire in the belly of the community, where they were more adamant on taking on issues. You know, that whole, um, that post 9-11 war on terror climate, where it was like, you know, you guys saw, are you British or Muslim, we had Australian or Muslim. Um, and then it was this whole debate of are you a moderate Muslim and, you know, do you integrate all that kind of thing that it whipped up the community and it forced Muslims to see themselves for who they are. Like, OK, yeah, you know, we don't want to adopt the the terminology and the sort of the, the rhetoric of it, but it did force you to take a side. Yeah. Like, are you Australian, quote unquote, or Muslim? And it kind of forced you to question your allegiances and and see where you're at. And I feel like, um, and we kind of featured this on an earlier podcast, I feel like the new generation or the younger people, sound old now, um, who haven't experienced that sort of that war on terror push aren't as definite with where they want to be and who they want to be and what they want to stand for. They're a lot more sort of placid and middle ground. Um, So I, I kind of feel like we were formed and we were sort of um, moulded and shaped by that global situation. And because that's altered and that's a bit less ferocious, so to speak, um, it, it's shaped community dynamics. That's what I feel anyway.
0: Yeah. Um, no, we might, we might uh, try to wrap it up. At that, there is a there's a lot of other things that I wanted to talk to you about, specifically about the UK as well, um, with the petrol crisis and talk of bringing the soldiers in as well. I think that was very interesting. Would have been lovely if we had time to talk about that, but maybe uh, in a in an, in a new uh, episode in the near future, we'd absolutely love to have you on again.
1: Oh, absolutely, um, we would love it. It was a fantastic discussion.
0: Yeah. So. Um, we might wrap it up there.
1: Um, let so me much. propose, though. Let me propose. Perhaps in the near future, inshallah, we can have a Blood Brothers Convo collaboration of some sort. Maybe do something yep. with Five Pillars itself because, mashallah, you guys do some brilliant work. Um, so, mashallah. you know, if there's possibilities for collaboration, why not take them on?
2: Okay, yeah. D- Dilly's actually in charge of the, the Blood Brothers uh, podcast. That's uh, his thing. Yeah. So yep. I think you've got a direct line to Dilly. So uh, bring <laughs> yep, that yep. up with him. But, uh, <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm all for it. <laughs> no worries. Jazakallah khair, brother, for coming. Um, okay, we did have text so messages for your information during the uh, podcast saying, we love this brother. Who is he? <laughs> so We need to get you on the, on the podcast again, inshallah, to, uh, maybe to cover some other issues. Today's podcast was very different because it is the end of the year. We're looking at a year in review. Yes. So kind of like a jack of all trades, master of none type approach. Um, but we we generally like to narrow the topic and hone in on it so as to sort of maximise that benefit yeah. for our audience. Um, and yeah, we'll leave it at that. Um, um, and yeah, Hamza, any last words? And we'll wrap it up for uh, the year. That's
1: all for me. JazakAllah Khair um, to all our viewers and listeners. Uh, it's been an interesting year, and Inshallah, we'll be back ready to go in 2022 once again. JazakAllah.